the Old Testament can, can seem like such a mysterious book. Uh, and the stories that we read can seem so far removed from our daily lives. And yet, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans says, talking about the Old Testament, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. These stories were written to shape our memories, our identities, our future. And it's an invitation not just to read Scripture hopefully, but to live hopefully. To live lives that are pulsating with a hope that is real and robust, strong enough to meet the challenges of the day. Real enough to infuse life into the monotony of just trying to get through another day, another week, another month, another year. But, but what does this look like on, on the ground? Well, we've read Genesis chapter 32. And you know, of course, that this is part of a larger story. But here we meet Jacob, and Jacob is one of those biblical characters that raises more questions than answers. He's a shady guy. He, he's a fighter from his mother's womb. He was, he's always wrestling with someone. He was wrestling with his twin brother in Rebecca's womb, and later with his brother again outside the womb, and then with his father and his father-in-law and his wives, and, and even God. There's bad blood between these two siblings, and you know the story. Jacob cheats his brother out of the blessing. He deceives his blind father. And then under the threat of murder from his own brother Esau, he's exiled to that very place where Abram had been told by God to leave years before. And so by, by doing so, as the bearer of God's promises, he puts those very same promises in jeopardy. He marries his, his families there, and, and between them and his, his slaves, he fathers 13 children. And then finally, fed up with his father-in-law's manipulations and schemings, apparently he can hand it out, but he can't take it, he decides to go home. And it's not really an option because he's overstayed his welcome there, and so leaving is the only option. And yes, it's true that God has told him it's time to come back, but he's fleeing from Laban. Those are the immediate circumstances. And yet, as he does this, he thinks, I need to let Esau know. So he sends word, and he hears back that your brother's coming, and 400 men are coming to meet you too. The saying of jumping from the frying pan into the fire is certainly true in this point of the story. And as the consummate deal-maker, he's scared stiff. So he thinks up a plan. He resorts to what makes the world go round in so many places. He thinks up a bribe. He sends caravans of gifts and all these animals, and, and he puts spaces between them, and, and he says, you know, this is for you, this is for you, this is for you. And then he separates his families into two groups, and he thinks, well, if he takes one group, then maybe the other one can go. And so then he crosses 
to the other side of the river Jabbok. Physically exhausted and deeply and emotionally anxious, he collapses on the bank of the stream. He's there with no possessions, no family. He's all alone. And yet, this is where his real struggle begins. He's got Laban behind, er, behind him, Esau in front of him, and, and he's, he's done. Trying to leave the family history behind is tough enough. Wrestling with God is another story altogether. And spiritual teachers over the centuries have said that silence and solitude and deserted places are often places where we encounter God. This is what has been said to be the dark night of the soul. And so on this dark and lonely night, someone meets him. And Jacob never gets to see his face. Throughout the entire narrative, the author simply calls him a man, a man, a man. And through those hours of the dark night, they wrestle back and forth, and you can hear their grunts and their labored breathing as, as they grab one another again and again, and they lock their arms, and they're lunging, pushing, rolling on the ground. Then their feet are pounding again as they strain to bring the other person down. They retreat for a few steps to come to their opponents again and again, and you can hear their sleeves scrape across their foreheads as they wipe away the sweat, even though they wrestle in the cold desert night air. And it goes on for hours. It's, it's a silent battle. And then, just before dawn, this stranger reaches out his hand and he, he touches Jacob's thigh and, and Jacob winces and, and it's a moment of weakness and he realizes this is no ordinary fight. And my opponent is no ordinary man. No, he's wrestling with God, he realizes. God wrestles with him in the darkness of the night on his way home. He's wrestling with Elohim, his creator. It's astounding. It's one of these amazing passages in Scripture. Like Jacob, we are not told who this man is. The, the text simply repeats, a man, a man, a man. And then as it becomes light, and Jacob limps along, he intensifies the struggle. He hangs on for all he's worth. He's like a trapped animal. He, he's, his survival instincts are so strong, and, and he just holds on. And so it's the opponent it's the other person that says, let me go, let me go. But Jacob says, no, no, no. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. He has recognized enough to know that this is no ordinary man. And so the man speaks again and he says, what's your name? Now, we need to pause here. This is much more than just asking a question for information. God's questions are not for his benefit, they're for ours. It was just like after the fall when Adam and Eve hide, and God says, Adam, Adam, where are you? It's not that God didn't know. It was Adam who had to come and face the facts of what he had actually done. And so, you know, context is everything in communication. 
application. Context is everything. If I were to say five words, it is going to rain. Those five words have a profoundly different significance depending on our circumstances and contexts. I realize this is a rather cool November morning, but just imagine that you're going to go camping and it's the summertime, and, and so the, the car is loaded and you're all set to go and you turn on the news and you hear those words, it's going to rain. You're not going to be very excited. If you're planning, you know, you spent months planning your, your wedding day and, and you're doing this outside and all the chairs are set up and you look at your phone and you see it's going to rain, you're not excited. If, however, you planted a field and your crops are withering under the hot sun and you hear the news and it says it's going to rain, that would be wonderful news. Or if you're fighting a forest fire, a brush fire in California or northern Alberta or Australia, you would be absolutely thrilled to hear those words, it's going to rain. If you were a farmer in East Africa and you've had serious drought for years, and suddenly the news is that it's going to rain, you would probably dance. If on the other hand, we're on Mount Carmel, and it's the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, those five words would take on a decidedly theological importance. Context is everything. The same words, but depending on the context, the importance of these words can, can mean different things. And so I suggest that, that the more penetrating question is, is is not simply what is your name, but it needs to be understood as who really are you? Who really are you? At least 15 years earlier, blind old Isaac had heard somebody come into his tent in the, and he had asked, who are you? And Jacob had lied. And he had said, I'm Esau, your firstborn. And he had the hairy arms and the smelly clothes to prove it. And now, so many years later, in the darkness of the night, when it's impossible to recognize somebody else's face, a man asks him again for his name. Who are you? Context is everything. What is the context? Well, Jacob is on his way home. He's back to the land of promise, and he needs to come to terms with his identity, with his true self in this dark desert night. This is an urgent existential question that Jacob needs to face. And so he answers, I'm Jacob. He's not Esau this time. No, no, he's Jacob. And we know that the name Jacob means supplanter, liar. And so he admits now his name without trying to cover anything up. No, no, I'm, I'm Jacob, the deceiver, the thief, the opportunist, the schemer, the manipulator. We know the story. Jacob faces his past, his sad story, his failures. He's wrestling with God in the dark, and then he faces this deep existential question about who he is, and he's forced to be honest. I'm a failure. Vulnerable 
and all alone in the dark night, fearful and powerless against Esau, who's coming to him with 400 men, exhausted and now wrestling with God and beginning to limp. He's Jacob, nothing more and nothing less. And yet, and yet, and this is the point, he also comes to see who God wants him to become. Because it is the grace of God that meets him in this lonely, dark place and changes his identity, who makes him into someone new. So that just like Peter, when he's confronted with his true self in the presence of Jesus and says, go away from me, I'm a sinful man. Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're no longer Simon. Now you are Peter the Rock. I'm going to build my church with you, and you will be a fisher of human beings. And so here God gives Jacob a new name that indicates a new relationship, a new purpose in life. He's no longer Jacob, but Esau. Uh, sorry, but Isaac, the prince who prevails with God. But it can also be translated, let God rule. Well, Jacob... He stops. I mean, he's perplexed about this. He's, he's been known as Jacob for his entire life. I mean, and he's gotten by with this no problem. And so, and so who, who is this person that comes along and gives him a new name? And, 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 so, and with this new name and a new identity. And so he asks, and, and so, so who are you? The man responds, well, why do you want to know my name? Why, why do you want to know who I am? And so the text says, instead, you know, right then and there, God blesses him. And you know, the interesting thing is that Jacob needs to learn to be content to live with the mystery. Later on, as he reflects on this event, Jacob understands. And he says, I've seen God face to face, and my life has been preserved. I'm, I've lived to tell the story, and so he names this place Peniel. In this dark moment, Jacob cannot fathom God. He cannot manipulate him. He can't play tricks on him. He can't even understand him. But he knows that God is there. He knows that he can face him. He can know without fully comprehending God. And as he walks into the new day, he does so with this limp. It doesn't, this meeting with God does not answer all of his questions. But he knows without a doubt that God is there. And he's wounded to prove it. So if somebody were to ask him afterwards to describe this moment, he would have to say, you know what, I really don't know. I couldn't get a clear look at his face. It was half light, half dark, but I know it was God. He would live with that unanswered question. So often the mystics will say that the journey to God is like coming into the light, but the more we journey on, the deeper the journey is, and it becomes into the mystery of God where we cannot explain everything. We simply hold on, and we come out changed on the other side. It's the truth about prayer, too. We don't always get the answers that we pray for, but we are transformed into different people through the process. And that's infinitely more important. And so as the sun comes up, Jacob is a different man. He realizes that he can't rely on schemes, on, on clever human strategies, much less deceit. He realizes 
that only God can bring him home. In his fears about meeting Esau, God not only allows him to struggle, God is with him in the struggle. And even when he could not make out his face and knew, know who he was in the dark, he comes to realize that ultimately there, God is there to bless. So Jacob had a critical lesson to learn. He realized that the face he needed to fear most was not Esau's, it was God's. Why? Because he had left his father-in-law's house as Jacob the deceiver. He's on his way back to the land of promise, and that doesn't work. If the promise is ever going to go from Abraham's descendants to the world, something needs to change desperately. Jacob needs to be transformed. And so this terrifying encounter is suddenly over, and now he can face Esau, even though he has a limp. So as the text tells the story, Jacob lifts up his eyes and he sees Esau coming with the 400 men. He's now no longer at the back. Now he comes to the front of the whole family clan. And the reunion is nothing like what he had feared and schemed for. No, no, he's embraced as a brother. God has brought Jacob back into his family. His fears are unfounded. The sinner and the sinned against are reconciled. The deceiver and the deceived embrace. Through the amazing blessing of God, Jacob is a humbled man, and it affects everything. Grace is never a personal affair. It embraces all of life, and it restores all of our relationships. Instead of isolation, there's solidarity. Instead of darkness, light. Instead of fear, courage. Instead of powerlessness, strength to face both God and his brother. Instead of vulnerability, there's surrender. Instead of exhaustion, there's endurance. Instead of deceit, there's truth and transparency. And through this spiritual struggle, there's transformation, even if the only lasting proof is this lingering limp. Back in chapter 13, the 32 verse 3 he had sent messengers to Esau to tell him that he's coming home and that after all these years what he seeks is Esau's approval and when they finally meet and he sees Esau with the 400 men he gives this gift and he says if you can find it in your heart to welcome me receive these gifts and then he goes on to say when I saw your face it was as the face of God that invisible face that he hadn't seen during the struggle is now smiling on him. So he says, accept these gifts. God has blessed me, and I have more than enough. You can read about that in chapter 33. Jacob had to learn through a theological paradox that what he expected to happen did not happen, that his fears did not materialize, that God is engaged in the world to correct and to comfort. So no, God is not always with us as we might have hoped or expected as we make our way back home with this motley blend of shrewdness and scheming, self-sufficiency and anxiety. God is sometimes against us even as he is for us. He cripples us even as he blesses us so that we and our descendants remember that we have met with God. 
In the darkness, we, like Jacob, not only learn about God, we meet God because God comes to meet us. So Jacob continues home, and he finally builds, builds an altar to praise God. The God, he writes, not of Jacob the liar, but the God of Israel. You know, this is part of Scripture written at a particular time for a particular people in particular circumstances. This was written so that Israel might have hope. And as Moses would have retold the stories of the patriarchs to the Hebrews as they were on their journey between the Exodus and the Promised Land, this was a story that would shape them and give them their identity. And soon they would be standing on the shore of the Jordan, not the Jabbok, but the Jordan. And they needed to learn this key lesson as well. The God of the Exodus would bring them into the promised land. But it would not be through human assertiveness, human reasoning or scheming, human self-sufficiency. It could only happen as they learned to trust in their covenant God. It was faith they needed. And they had to remember that God remembers his promises and that that is the basis of everything. The basis of lasting hope. But this is our scripture too, written that we might have hope. Because the truth is that we don't always learn our lessons well either. And yet through it all, God is always committed to us through his covenant promises. We are invited to enter the kingdom of God, a kingdom of grace and peace. A kingdom that celebrates the gracious reign of God over all of life. But you can't get in with cleverness. You can't do it on your own. You can't get in by human schemes or by, by planning where you can make a deal with God. God, I will give you this if you give me that. Thank God that you don't do this by trying just a little harder. Because a little harder is never good enough. And isn't it true as covenant people, as the community of the baptized we might be the new Israel of God, as Paul states, but old Jacob pops up his head again and again and again. And God wants truth in the deepest places of our lives, and yet we're surprised, aren't we, that we find hypocrisy and deceit and anxiety or a spirit of self-sufficiency as we don't always dare to trust God for the future. And then faced with the challenges of life, again, we seek God's comforting presence, even as we struggle with these perfect demands of God who is present in our lives in a mysterious way. We try to make out the contours of his face in the darkness and in the middle of the struggle, as we search for answers, we pray, Oh God, who really are you? What are you like? To our astonishment, we find that he is the God who blesses. And so his final word for us is blessing. And the long night is over. And the sunshine of his blessing shines on us again. The kingdom of God is both already here and yet not fully here in its full manifestation. And as we journey home, we have much to learn. We are called to embody, to announce, to demonstrate the gospel of the kingdom in this city at this time. 
And Pastor Hayden has been walking us through a better understanding of, of what the mission and, and of the church is and what the values are that shape our church. And we live in, in concrete realities in, in our family, in our business, in our n- n- neighborhood. And as God shapes us to be his people, we often face some sort of a challenge. We struggle to figure out who is this God who meets us in the dark and difficult places to both wound us and to bless us. The God who will not let us go, but he won't let us let him go either. And as we keep walking week after week after week, Sunday after Sunday, we listen to scripture and song and sacrament. And we are surprised to discover on the other side of the manger and of the other side of the cross and the empty tomb that it is Jesus, not Esau, who is the human face of God. We are left breathless as we come to realize that the creator God who commanded light to shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. And so as we, with unveiled faces, with complete transparency, with open honesty, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are not consumed. We are not burned to a crisp in an instant, but rather we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the very same Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians 3.18. And spurred on by this amazing hope, we cling to the God of Bethel, the God of Peniel, the God of the Exodus, the God of Sinai, the God who gives life, the God of the covenant, the God of the cross, the God of the resurrection, the God who brings the exiles home. And with John, we stand amazed and we wonder aloud, how how did this happen? Because God has given us a new name too. Listen to what John says. Behold what manner of love the Father has lavished on us so that we should be called not sons and daughters of Jacob, but children of God. We are called, present tense, even in the middle of the journey as we limp along, even in that long, lonely night in a deserted place, others might not understand us, but now, at this moment, we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know, John says, that when he is revealed, when we meet him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so as we leave this place this morning, remember who you are. Remember your story. This is your story and mine. Remember this God who wrestles with us as we journey home. Remember your identity because a people without a memory is a people without an identity, without a purpose. Remember, remember who you are. And when things get tough, don't run away, but rather hold on to God tenaciously. Prayer isn't so much about getting things or solving problems. Prayer is always about being transformed into a different kind of person, into a different kind of people.
live passionately as those who have seen the face of God in Jesus Christ and are still here to tell it. Live hopefully as you remember that God brings the exiles home, reconciled, renewed, restored. Live expectantly as you long for a home. You know, homesickness is one of those most, most basic human longings that we have, the desire to be home. We go home for Thanksgiving, home for Christmas. Home is where we're loved for who we are. Home is where all is forgiven after all is confessed. And there's more. To be truly home is to gather around the table and to share a meal. And as we journey, for us it's to come to the table and to share that bread and the wine that tastes like love. Live gratefully as those who have struggled through the night and faced your true identity but have received the greatest blessing of all, a new name and a new future. Live truthfully and transparently. Yes, we limp. Yes, we do. But we're no longer deceivers or phonies. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to pretend that we're anything more than redeemed sinners. But live hopefully as those who will one day, as eternity dawns, look into the face of God and discover that our judge is our redeemer and our friend. Pursue purity because it is the pure in heart who will see God. And let us press on, press on with grace for others as well because even as we recognize that we are unfinished projects, so are the people around us. So is the church around us. Why demand perfection from others when we're still needing so much work ourselves? Press on with an openness to the Spirit who renews us. So often we're te tempted to think that all we need to be is up to date when what God wants is transformation and reformation. And yes, let us raise our altars of praise to God. Praise him with our lips and with our lives because we've learned that it's grace from beginning to end, from first to last. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you that you are a God who is faithful to your promise, that you are a God who has splashed us with water and you have made us your own. You have stuck with us through thick and thin. We thank you that you work irresistibly in our hearts and lives so that we become the people that you want us to be. We're here this morning to say, Lord, that we want to be that people. We want to serve you. We want to be your people in this place at this time. So meet us again, O oh God, as you have, and help us to be all that you want us to be. We will give you all the glory. In Christ's name.